Have you ever had a conversation with someone that like brought back, brought to mind a, an important memory that you had kind of forgotten about? Um, younger folks these days talk about unlocking core memories. Um, they're so like well informed about how our memories and our mind works that they just use it in, in passing jargon. But this idea of encountering something that like brings to mind something that was really important and formational to you that you'd forgotten about but still was meaningful to you. I was talking the other day with my, my children, uh, my youngest two, about uh, kind of the food situation at school. Um, so when they get dropped off at school in the morning, their school provides them the option of having some breakfast in their classroom. And then they have lunch a little bit later on in the day, and then they have snack time. And so we were just talking about what they're having for snack, and um, they were asking me what snack time looked like when I was in elementary school, or what I had for breakfast when I was in elementary school. And I said, the schools didn't used to do that. Uh, we didn't have snack time, but we had milk time. You, older folks, you remember milk time? Did your schools have that? This was a big deal for, for my school. So in elementary school, they would, and this is for the younger kids, they would select two kids, this is how my school worked, two kids that were best behaved or the best kids ever or whatever, I don't remember, but it was usually me, um, <laughs> to go and get the milk crate from the corner of the room and you'd, you'd leave the classroom unsupervised. It was first grader, second grader, third grader, you'd leave the classroom unsupervised and go out into the hallway where nobody was. And you'd go down two or three hallways, which as, at the time felt like the school was the most massive building I'd ever been in, and wandering these empty hallways with you and a friend carrying this milk crate. You'd go to this cooler that was just sitting in the hallway, and you'd open it up, and you'd pull out this piece of paper that the teacher gave you that said, 17 chocolate, one white, or 19 chocolate, three white. And what that was was the milk order for the kids in your class. And you'd count out, oh, this, and then you'd get the one, the milk container that was smushed open and got everything else covered in nasty milk, right? But this was a big deal. This is, do we have people that remember this? Is this only my experience? Yeah, uh, a few folks know what I'm talking about, right? So it, was, it was a big, and then you'd go back to your classroom and you'd pass out the milk to the kids that had it. Um, but for me, those moments of being selected on milk duty to go out into this empty hallway where nobody else was. Number one, it kind of felt good to be selected. Like, again, it had to be somebody the teacher trusts to roam the hallways by themselves. Um, but then there was this responsibility of getting the milk for the other kids in your class. And if you, for whatever reason, took the long way to the milk cooler or on the long way back and the teacher stopped you and said, what are you doing? Well, I'm getting milk for my class. They're like, okay. So it was kind of like a hall pass, too. Um, not that we took uh, advantage of that too often. Um, but as I was talking to my kids about this, this memory, um, I had this sudden longing to return to those days. Um, to find myself, if, if I could have in that moment put myself back in Haynes Elementary School in New Lenox, carrying a milk crate through those hallways, I would have in that moment. Um, the burdens of life were non-existent. I felt safe. I felt good about myself. There was just a peace. Life was good carrying the milk crate in the hallway of Haynes Elementary School. 
And I, I would love to be able to go back and experience that again. And I'm, I'm sure it probably wasn't milk crates or whatever, but I'm sure you have something similar that you look back on and say, man, those were the good days. If I could do that again, I would. If I could find myself in that situation again, that's where I would go. Uh, the phrase that we, the, the, the term for that is nostalgia. And nostalgia and, and honestly like a retro design, I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of the new cars look older. Uh, a lot of the, the new decorations for your home look older. A lot of the, the, the design features for, for clothes look older. Like there's this element. I mean, people take Polaroid pictures like in a nostalgic sense. Like the Polaroid camera came back some people don't even know, some people are young enough, they don't even know what I'm talking about. But Polaroid pictures came back because of a sense of nostalgia. New things are basically old things recycled. There's this, this hunger in our culture this, for these days, these, these design elements, this nostalgia is, is amazingly popular. And, and for a moment, in the moment that you're in, nostalgia serves a purpose. It provides this retreat, a respite, a rest, a way to feel less alone, a way to feel safe. The word nostalgia roughly translated from Greek means a longing to return home. This desire that feels like you've wandered far from home and you want to return back to which is familiar, comfortable, and safe. And it makes sense that some of us would seek and find comfort now in our pop culture Find something that feels like home, that's reliably soothing, something that's predictable, in a world where so much is not comfortable, reliable, soothing, predictable. And so when things get hard, or when things go wrong, or when things aren't how we wish them to be, we grieve, we lament. But sometimes we find ourselves hoping that we could get back to how things were before. And that's kind of what's going on in our scripture story today. We're going to uh, look at the, obviously it's Easter, so we're going <laughs> to be looking at uh, the story of Jesus not being in the tomb, Jesus being raised. We're going to look, though, in Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. And initially we're going to start looking at the story from the perspective of Mary. Um, so Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10, it says, After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, Mary Hillman, went to look at the tomb. <laughs> there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, 
and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would gather our minds that we may be one with you. Open our ears that we may hear your word. Soften our hearts that we may receive your wisdom. Speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. Amen. Uh, So Christmas wasn't that long ago, was it? it's been a few months, maybe it feels like a while ago, but in reality it wasn't that long ago. And in the build-up to the Christmas day, then the Christmas season, we called Advent. We talked a lot about hope. Uh, Advent is a word which reminds us to prepare, to expect something to show up. This gift is coming, right? And, and, and when Jesus shows up at Christmas, we say, Emmanuel, God is with us, and we celebrate not only Jesus in a manger, oh, the baby Jesus was born, it's Jesus' birthday, but more importantly, we celebrate that God, God himself has come and is dwelling in flesh amongst his people. So Advent, Christmas, is tied to this hope, this expectation, and we can have hope because Jesus, in Jesus, God is with us. <coughs> the birth of Jesus begins his mission of salvation and redemption into all of creation. And even though Jesus grew up in obscurity, even the Bible doesn't record much of what happens in his childhood, when he began his public ministry, people started following him because they found hope in this Jesus. And that's what happened with uh, the person we're focusing on in Scripture this morning is Mary Magdalene. Luke chapter 8, which we we didn't read, but in Luke 8 it tells us that she had demons, seven demons cast out of her. And then because of that, in response to that, she followed Jesus. Now when it says (coughs) that she followed Jesus, she would have seen him heal people, right? So from that moment on, she followed him and watched and observed and She would have seen him heal other people beyond herself. She saw Jesus feed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Mary would have heard Peter announce that Jesus was the Christ. She would have been there to hear that announcement, the conversation that followed. She heard the parables and the teachings of Jesus. She could have been there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead She saw Jesus do all the things that we say make Jesus who Jesus is. She was a follower of Jesus. From what she experienced herself to what she saw, to what she heard others say, she would have seen that Jesus was special. Jesus is doing things that only God can do. (coughs) Jesus is teaching. Jesus is teaching us things that are, at the same time, loving and yet powerfully filled with truth. 
And so when we say that Mary Magdalene was a follower of Jesus, we don't mean she prayed a prayer once or that she liked Jesus a lot. She was a fan. We mean she followed him with hope, with commitment and fidelity, faithfulness. She trusted that what she did for Jesus, um, or what Jesus did for her, she trusted that what Jesus did for her, Jesus was going to do for all Israel, cast out demons and heal, bring restoration and wholeness and salvation. What Jesus did for her, she believed Jesus was going to do for all of Israel, and so she followed him faithfully. She believed Jesus was sent by God. That's what a Messiah meant. The anointed one, the one that was uh, God's chosen for this specific, unique purpose. He was sent by God. She, she believed that Jesus was worth following. Whatever life she had before she met Jesus, she was willing to, uh, I don't know if abandon's the right word, but to set it aside, to follow Jesus, to, to make him the priority, to faithfully follow him and reshape the rest of her life around where Jesus was going and what he was saying and what he was doing. She believed that Jesus was worth following. And then she watched Jesus get arrested. She watched or heard of his beatings and the torture he endured. She watched a crowd start cheering, crucify him. She watched nails driven through his hands and his feet. She watched Jesus hang on a cross speak a few words, and then she watched as he died. And as good as things were with Jesus, as high as the hopes that Mary had in Jesus, the expectations, again, that he was going to do for Israel what he had done for her, as high as Mary's hopes were and as high as her expectations had gotten about who Jesus was and what he was going to do, things got equally as bad very quickly. Despair and hopelessness had to have come crashing down. We don't have scripture that tells us, you know, Mary's response to all of this, but if you put yourself in her shoes, I think you can realize where she was at. I mean, God with us on Christmas turned into, well, Jesus is dead on Good Friday. God dead? Is this not the one from God? Was he not who we thought he was? Either way, that which the Marys, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and the others put their hope in, this Jesus, whether he was God or not, they probably weren't certain at this point in time, but regardless, that which they put their hope in was gone. Jesus was crucified. So what does Mary and Mary do when it appears that this hope is gone? The scriptures for this morning tells us they go to look at the tomb. Why would you go to look at the tomb? Well, if you've ever lost a loved one and found yourself graveside, um, you know why they went to look at the tomb. They go to grieve. They go to be with Jesus. They went to hold on to the fleeting memories 
They went to seek understanding. They go to question what went wrong. They go because at one point they committed to following Jesus and now he's dead and they don't know where else to go. They go to the tomb because the past makes more sense than the future. They go because without a hope of Jesus leading them into the future, they are stuck in the present, a present that was shaped by the events of the past. They go because their hope was deeply connected to their faith in God and they aren't sure what God is doing anymore. In other scriptures, we learn that many of the other disciples had gathered together in fear and confusion because they were experiencing the same thing. This appears that our journey has come to an abrupt dead end. Peter once confessed, we have given up everything to follow you, Jesus. Where else are we going to go? And here at the Good Friday and the days following, they are asking that same question. We've given it up to follow you. Where are we supposed to go now? Except they don't even have Jesus with them. It can be easy from our perspective to judge the women who went to the tomb who were surprised to find that Jesus wasn't there. Or maybe sometimes we can criticize the disciples hiding in the upper room, confused and afraid. I mean, didn't they know that Jesus was going to rise on the third day? That's how the story works. Didn't they know that the Messiah has to die in order to be resurrected so that in their death they can find resurrection life? Didn't they know that the risen Christ walked amongst them? He wasn't even in the tomb anymore. He was on foot walking amongst them. So why were they afraid and grieving, we might ask? Didn't they know that their hope still lived? How could they not realize that the Jesus who walked on water, who healed the sick and the blind, the Jesus who raised the dead, the Jesus who turned water into wine, the one who called them by name, who forgave their sins, the one who opened up the scriptures to them, the one who revealed God's truth to them would be with them always? Didn't they know that? Why in this moment did they think that their best days with Jesus were in the past? Why did they fear the future, grieve the present, and long for a past? Why did they fear the future, grieve the present, and long for the past? It's those three questions that I want to ask us on this Easter Sunday morning. Why do we fear the future? Why do we grieve the present? Why do we long for the past? Do we not realize that the Jesus who walked on water, who healed the sick and the blind, the Jesus who raised the dead, who turned water into wine, the Jesus who called us by name, who forgave our sins, who opens the scriptures to us and reveals God's truth to us would be with us always? Why would we be afraid and grieving? Don't we know that our hope lives? Don't we know that the risen Christ walks amongst us? Don't we understand that the worldly things die so heavenly things, so resurrected things can live? Easter is a big deal for us church people. Probably the biggest deal. It's a day of celebration. It's a day of victory. It's a day of renewed hope. And yet it's tragic that many people 
who follow Jesus don't find the joy of Easter showing up in their faith the other 364 days out of the year. We look at the world around us and we're afraid for the future. We're grieving the present because it's not what we'd want it to be. And we long for a past where things made more sense or we've experienced God. And so we long for that past. When I was in, in college, I took a untraditional path to, to get to graduation. Um, at one point, I was working full-time in a, in a warehouse um, while being a full-time student at Olivet Nazarene University. And at one point, there was a class I needed to take that was a, um, only offered Monday nights. And I was working uh, in the warehouse, and at, at, I had been working afternoons, so I'd go there after school. But I needed this class that was at 6 o'clock at night, and the only way I could get this class in was if I bid on a job in another department that worked midnights. And so for an entire year of school, I worked 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. I'd go in Sunday night at 11 p.m. and do my warehouse work, get out of the warehouse at 7 o'clock in the morning, and I'd go to breakfast, and then I'd go to class, and then my last class of the day was Greek, um, which don't take Greek on no sleep. That's not a good, good thing. Um, and then I'd take a, a nap from like 4, 3 to 4, whatever, until 5.30 when I had to go to this class at 6 o'clock. And I'd go to class from 6 to 8, I think, and then grab some food and go back to, go back to work. And I did that every week for an entire school year. And that'll wear on you. I don't recommend it. Uh, looking back, I'm going, I probably could have figured out a different way, but this was the path that I found. Uh, the call to ministry is what pulled me forward. It's the reason why I didn't give up, but it was a hard season of life. Um, juggling work and school and everything else that was going on. Um, and so I found myself in, in chapel. All of that, the students go to chapel twice a week. And I found myself in chapel just numb. Like, I had adopted this, this mantra, like, like I'll sleep when, <laughs> I sleep when I'm dead, I'll feel feelings later. Like, that was kind of the thing. It was like, just defer everything with life. But I found myself sitting in this, this chapel seat as a 19-year-old, um, just numb. I'd fall asleep. The, my chapel buddies would always nudge me to wake me up because um, I'd probably was snoring or something. But um, I found myself sitting in this, in the, in this and there was this, this song that came on that I had never heard before. A song called Breathe. And there's this moment in this song where it says, I am desperate for you. I don't know if many of you from It's not like a super popular song. It was kind of big around 2000. But um, when the, the chapel band sang the word desperate, like that cut through all the numbness, all the, the hardness that had built up in my life. The, everything I was using to kind of just survive, it cut through all of that. And just that word desperate, that was God identifying in me something that I couldn't identify in myself. And it cut through, and I got super emotional super fast. So I went from the kid snoring next to my chapel buddy to the kid that's just emotional, just bawling. And they're like, are you okay? I'm like, I don't know. But the rest of that chapel service uh, was a, one of the most intimate moments with God I think I can ever describe. God met me there. And it started with that one word and that one song, and I found hope and renewal, and I knew that I wasn't alone. 
And so there was this song, and you know what I did after that chapel service got over? I went to Target and bought a CD. Wow, that's worship. Because um, that was the, <laughs> the one that had that song on it. Um, and I sat in my car and listened to that song over and over again. And the next day and the next week and the next month went by, and when I'd find myself struggling or having a time, I'd go and put that CD in. I, I still have it floating around somewhere. Um, and I'd listen to it again, and it would remind me of this encounter that I had with God. This emotional remembering of this encounter with God. And it was this longing to connect with God again that drove me to put that CD into my CD player. But there was a moment where I realized that I was looking at that memory and method of encountering God rather than encountering God again. Breathe on CD while that's worship 2001 or whatever um, became a substitute for an encounter with God because I could go put that CD in I didn't have to look for God I, I had him on CD I had that experience bottled up I had it. and so I realized at some point that, that the memory of that experience became a barrier to me experiencing that again because I had narrowed my periphery my, what I was willing to see God doing based off on what God had done in the past. And I can listen to that song today, and it still brings back powerful memories and emotions. It reminds me that God met me in some of the hardest moments of my life, and as encouraging and as comforting as those memories and that reminder is, it's not the same as having an experience with Jesus himself. They're memories. They're reminders. And so in that moment, through that experience, I learned something that Mary, that both Marys in our story learned that day. While it can be comforting to remember where we encountered Jesus in the past, our hope is in a king who is alive today and who is working on creating a holy future. And so when the Marys hear that Jesus is alive, the scriptures say that they were still a little confused and a little worried and not quite sure what's going on, but the scriptures say they were filled with joy. And as they're on their way, filled with joy, that their life with Jesus isn't something that happened in the past, that their, their life with Jesus continues into the present, they encounter Jesus. It's, it's really interesting that the moment that they, they realize that Jesus isn't in the tomb, that their best days with Jesus aren't behind them, that they're able to see him. They can have a new experience for him when they realize that he's alive. All the amazing miracles that Jesus performed as the disciples looked on were meant to tell us who he was. The Gospel of John actually calls them signs, not miracles. Um, they indicate that he is the Messiah, that he's God's chosen king, he's God's anointed, the righteous king of Israel, the long-awaited king who would lead them in the ways of God. But Easter isn't about who Jesus is as much as it is about where Jesus is. The Marys thought Jesus was in the tomb. He was not, and he is not. He was and is alive, living, and walking amongst his disciples. And while we use words to say that we believe Jesus is alive, as we shout hallelujahs and say, he is risen, 
right? All right, we didn't have to practice that, good. Our hearts and our minds sometimes reveal different attitudes. When we confess that Jesus is risen and present with us, our actions can sometimes reveal different beliefs or attitudes. It might be that a fear of a changing world, um, maybe nostalgia for this longing for a familiar past, or a belief that our journey with Jesus is complete, that we've experienced everything that God has for us. These things can take the, the very things that we've used in the past to experience Jesus, my song about being desperate for God, and, and that CD could become a barrier to experience Jesus today. Maybe you had a powerful experience with Jesus during a revival or a camp meeting. And so just as I played my CD, uh, that song over and over again, you find yourself longing for a revival service or a camp meeting like the one you used to have. Maybe you became a Christian while a certain type of music was popular. So you long to find that powerful experience where you've never felt closer to God again by returning to that type of music. What I've noticed over the years pastoring is that, that people's favorite Christian music, their favorite church music, seems to correspond with what was most popular or most present with them when they became a Christian. It's like what God used to speak to them, the music that God used to speak to them in those important years becomes their favorite. And it, it doesn't matter the type of genre of music, it's this is how God spoke to me. It's just a connection that I've observed over the years. Or maybe there was a preacher who preached a certain way, and because the way that person preached, you found new life in Jesus through those sermons or teachings. So now you really wish or trying to find that type of preaching or teaching. Maybe you felt closest to Jesus in a certain type of church or a certain type of service, and now, I mean, we know that the world is changing, but church is changing too. And maybe it's changed so much, or the service has changed, so you've Find yourself longing for the way it was when you experienced Jesus in the most powerful and real ways to you. Maybe the road you've been walking with Jesus feels a bit like a dead end. Maybe if you could just make a U-turn and go back to the last time you experienced Jesus alive and present with you. If you could return those, the place where you're, you're longing to, to get back to. That last time you experienced Jesus present and alive with you, if you could just get back to that place, that time, that situation, maybe you could find what you were looking for. But the Marys in our story went back to the last place they saw Jesus, the tomb, and he wasn't there. When they heard that Jesus wasn't there, they left Right? They, they went to go back to the last place they'd encountered Jesus, the last place they knew he was, he was at, but because Jesus is alive, he is not dead, he doesn't stay there in the past. And so when they left and encountered Jesus, they didn't forget their story with Jesus, the one that got them from where they were to where they are now, to that point. But, and we got a slide for this, they realized that the story wasn't over. So when the angel appears, when they get the message that Jesus isn't in the tomb, he's alive, what they heard was that his story continues. 
their experiences with Jesus aren't over and done with. Fear of a changing world, nostalgia for a past, or a belief that our journey with Jesus is, is wrapped up, or the best days were in the past. It can take the very things we've used in the past to experience Jesus and make them barriers to experiencing Jesus today. Fear, nostalgia, cynicism, a lack of hope can cause our attention, our desires, and our hopes to be focused on something besides Jesus. If we're looking for Jesus in the tomb, we won't see Jesus walking in our midst. If we don't have the hope that Jesus is alive and present with us, that Jesus is making a holy future for us, we'll miss him even though he is risen and alive right in the middle of our community, in the middle of our lives. And the only thing worse that I can think of, the only thing worse than if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead is that Jesus is raised from the dead and alive in our presence, but we miss it because we're focused on something else. If you are wondering what resurrection hope looks like, a hope that Jesus is present in our midst, I would encourage you to talk with Cindy about First Kids Learning Center or talk with Peggy about his hand. Can they remember a time where God was at work in those ministries in the past? You ask them, they'll say, of course. It's because of God's faithfulness in the past that we're able to be where we are today. Do they see Jesus at work in the middle of these ministries today, even though it's different than how it used to be? They tell me that every time we have a conversation. God's at work here. Does that mean it's comfortable or familiar or even obvious what God is up to? (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Every time I talk to him, God's up to something. Not sure what, but we're along for the ride, right? Because their experiences with Jesus in the past, and because they believe that Jesus is alive and present with them today, they have hope that Jesus is leading them today towards a holy future that God has planned for them. Not only do they know who Jesus is, but they see Jesus at work in their midst. They experience life with Jesus because they don't expect to find him in tombs. They know that Jesus is alive and at work in their midst. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. I know many of you are familiar with an old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Have you heard this song? Goes, um, that could easily be the, the title of Easter's sermon today. Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. It's a little King Jamesy language, but the point is that God doesn't change. And then it says, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. New mercies each and every day. We don't have to hold on to yesterday's provisions. God will meet today's needs with today's mercies. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, the song continues. It says they join with all nature 
in manifold witness to that great faithfulness, mercy, and love. It says the seasons change, the heavens and the earth move, yet these changing seasons, these moving heavens, these moving stars are a witness, a testimony. They testify to God's faithfulness, mercy, and love. The song continues. It says, pardon for sin, a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and guide, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine, with 10,000 beside. God's presence with us encourages us, guides us, gives us strength that we need for today as we anticipate God's holy future which will be more abundant than we can imagine. Let your experiences with Jesus in the past encourage you to seek the living Jesus today and to put your hope in him in the future. Because Jesus is not an idea. Jesus isn't a doctrine. He's not a belief system. He's not a team to be on, but Jesus is the living king who rules and reigns over the present and the future. For the next several weeks, we'll be in a sermon series called Living Hope. Our hope is alive because Jesus is alive and our hope is in Jesus. What we're going to look at in this sermon series is what does it mean to live every day as if the resurrection happened? What does it mean to live every day as if the tomb is empty because Jesus is walking with us? What does it mean that our hope in Jesus is alive because Jesus is alive? Church, we do not have to be afraid of the future, even though we cannot control it, even though it's different and unfamiliar. We do not have to try and control it. We do not have to long for the days gone by because Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our future. And if we focus on the tomb, if we focus on that which has been lost and search for Jesus, put our hope in days gone by, we will hear that what the Marys heard 2,000 years ago when they went to the tomb. The angel said, I know you are looking for Jesus. The one who was crucified. I know that you're looking for Jesus. Your motives are good. Your heart is in the right place. I know you're looking for Jesus, but he is not here in this tomb. The events of Good Friday are not the end of the story. The things that happened in the past are not the final word. He is not here. Jesus is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Uh, Let me pray as the worship team comes. Hope and glory are our breath, O merciful Father, for you have rolled away the stone of despair. You've rolled away the stone of oppression, the stone of lament, the stone of grief, the stone of death, the stone of sin, the stone of fear. Come and stand amongst us and breathe on us your peace. Breathe on us your power. Breathe on us your eternal life. 
that all who labor, all who stumble, all who hunger, and all who fall short meet you in the breaking of bread and be lifted up by your touch as you're present with us. Father, shape your church to be your risen body. Make our scars beautiful like your scars. Make our lives life-giving like your life. And make our communion holy with your saints. Until you come again in glory and we eat with you in your kingdom. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, ever one God, it's in the name of Jesus we pray.